Hi, and yes, you're in the right podcast. Welcome back to Down and 30. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Today we're doing something a little bit different. This is the first episode in my October series, during which we'll cover a new serial killer every week. If you know me, you know that I love all things Halloween, scary, and true crime. So I thought what better way to enjoy this season with all of you than to shed some light on some of the most horrific and prolific serial killers, some of which you may know, some you may have never heard of. And my point in doing this is not to celebrate the crimes, but to bring awareness to these crimes. And in a lot of these cases, so many families have never gotten closure, so I wanted to shed a little bit of light on some of those cases as well. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the worst serial killers you may never have heard of before. Today, I'm going to talk to you about a serial killer that has been linked to over 30 crimes and at least 11 deaths. These crimes were not connected because they spanned from Alaska to Washington to Texas, New York, and even beyond. In the last 10 years, much has been speculated regarding this person's involvement in what are still considered missing persons cases. But for many reasons, most fear that those victims may have perished at the hands of the serial killer. This serial killer had a lifelong relationship, so to speak, with crime. Crime was present in his early life. Even as a child, he was known to break into his neighbor's homes and steal their guns. His crimes include burglary, robbery, kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder. His known crimes span from at least 2002 to 2012 which is where our story will start on the night of February 1st in Anchorage, Alaska. On that February 1st night in Anchorage, Alaska, a young girl, Samantha, was working at a super small coffee shop named Common Grounds. It was one of those coffee shops that you'll find at like a train station. They don't have much other than, you know, coffee, water, a couple little things like that. It's, you know, it's typically used by folks that are traveling by the train. And what we know about this night, a lot of it was later revealed by the police and surveillance footage. But the way that police found out something was wrong is that night, Samantha's boyfriend received an odd text. They had been dating for, you know, between nine months to a year at this point. And he received a text from Samantha's phone that said, I'm going to go out of town for a few days with some friends. And this struck him as super odd because the plan was for him to pick her up from work that night at the end of her shift. So the good boyfriend that he is, he heads on over to Common Grounds where he finds something very surprising. He gets there and all of the lights to the coffee shop are turned off. Samantha is nowhere to be found. After looking around a bit, he heads on over to Samantha's dad's house. She's not there either. 
This is when Samantha's dad immediately reports her missing. And fortunately, they are able to reach out to the owner of Common Grounds. And he says, yeah, sure, I've, I've got some surveillance footage. Let's take a look. We've got cameras in the shop. Upon reviewing the footage of that night, what is seen is Samantha going throughout the usual ins and outs. And at one point in the night, you see Samantha prepare and provide a beverage to a customer we don't see in the footage, but across the counter. After she hands the beverage, she turns around away from the customer. And when she turns back, her look is one of shock. And you see her hands go up as she sort of, you know, zones in and, and stares back at whoever is on the other side of that counter. What we see next is she slowly puts her hands up, sort of pulls away a little, and the expectation or assumption here is that whoever was on the other side of the counter probably asked her for all the money, you know, in, in a sort of robbery, because we see Samantha empty all the cash from the register. She's also, it seems like she's instructed to go ahead and turn the lights of the coffee shop out one after the other. After this, she's seen getting on the ground, and it's not exactly clear what happens here. After that, the footage of Samantha at the coffee shop is done, and there's no real answers, no real leads. A little over two weeks goes by, and that's when her boyfriend gets a text from Samantha's phone that says a super vague message. Connor Park under sign of Albert. And they're not exactly sure what to expect when they go to this park. Connor Park is um, this park in Alaska, and the mention of Albert is some sort of a, a statue or a shrine or something, um, to my understanding. So they're not exactly sure what they're going to encounter when they get there. But when they get there, Samantha and Samantha's dad and her boyfriend show up, and what they find is a ransom note and also a picture of Samantha holding a newspaper for that day's date, February 13th. After the ransom was requested, Samantha's father, along with members of the community, pulled together the amount requested, which was roughly about $30,000 to my understanding. After this ransom was given, it was deposited into Samantha's bank account as requested by the ransom note. This is when police and law enforcement attempted to use ATM tracking to track whoever kidnapped Samantha and, and is trying to use her money. They start to notice that, you know, there's, there's a, a bit of a, a lag and then all of a sudden there's ATM hits first in Alaska, then the next hit is in Arizona couple days later, the next hits New Mexico. And eventually, one of the last hits of Samantha's ATM card and the daily limit withdrawal of $500 is in Texas. It's Texas Highway Patrol that actually pulls over a white Ford Focus that matches the description of the car that Samantha was thought to be kidnapped in. The officer that pulled him over 
was pulling him over for some sort of traffic violation. And it was at that time that the man behind the wheel pulled out a driver's license from Anchorage, Alaska. The name on that driver's license was Israel Keys. Along with his driver's license, he had Samantha's ATM card and her cell phone, but there was no Samantha. At this point, weeks have gone by and Samantha hasn't turned up. There's been no leads. There's been no more messages. It doesn't seem like she's escaped or been let go by whoever took her. So police in Texas coordinate with police in Anchorage and it ends up that this is the guy they're looking for. And once he's apprehended, they have enough evidence to hold him on fraud charges and um, identity issues because he's got Samantha's phone, he's got her ATM card. And it's during this interview for those crimes that Israel Keys ends up admitting to police during his interview, and I think that the FBI was involved at this point too, he ends up admitting that he kidnapped Samantha. He lied to her to make her comply by saying that he only wanted her money and he let her know that he was only after money and if she just cooperated he would let her go but that was never his plan he never intended to let her go and my only assumption can be that samantha must have known that because at one point during the night she did indeed escape but not before he was able to catch her and at this point in time this is when he brought her back home to his shed which was only feet away from his girlfriend and young daughter. And in this shed is where he admits to sexually assaulting and eventually murdering Samantha that very night that she was kidnapped. You're probably wondering, okay, so what's the deal with the timeline? She was kidnapped on February 1st and the ransom note had a picture of Samantha alive on February 13th. It doesn't make sense. This is where it gets really scary and really gruesome. And one of the most devastating realizations for Samantha's dad and her boyfriend was that Israel admitted that Samantha wasn't alive on February 13th when that picture was taken. The night after he kidnapped and killed Samantha, Israel left on a pre-planned cruise where he was gone for about 10 days. During that time, Samantha's dead body was in the shed in his backyard where it was so cold, her body showed no signs of decomposition. Only until after he arrived back from the cruise is when Israel decided he was going to go through with the ransom note. To make that happen, he did something so horrific. I'm gonna give a warning. Um, this next part is unsettling. Israel admits to using a needle and thread to, to keep Samantha's eyes open and give the appearance that she was alive in the photograph he attached with the ransom note when in fact she had been dead for days. That was one of the most devastating 
outcomes that could have happened for Samantha's friends and family. Israel also admits that in order to get rid of Samantha's body, he dismembered her, took her body to a lake, and that's where he disposed of her. He told police and FBI exactly where her body was, and they were able to locate Samantha piece by piece, where she was able to be brought back to her family, and she was able to be laid to rest. During this interview, Israel admitted that this wasn't his first crime, and law enforcement was not surprised to hear this because of how vicious and vile and calculated Samantha's kidnap and murder was. They knew there was no way this was the first time he had done anything close to this. Israel admitted to many crimes, one of which involved a married couple who were attacked in their own home and later brought by Israel to an abandoned barn where they were murdered, the wife was sexually assaulted, the bodies were left there, and eventually it turns out after police are directed by Israel to the location of that crime. The barn where they were murdered was demolished, taking with it their remains. It's after these admissions and revelations that police realize there is probably so much more to investigate here. Israel says that most of the crimes he's committed have spanned across many, many states and that most of his victims are what we would consider to be missing persons. Their bodies have never turned up. There's never been any details. He basically said that anyone who he's murdered, we're not likely to ever find their bodies unless he directs us to them. And unfortunately, that will never happen because in December of 2012, Israel Keyes was found hanging dead in his jail cell, taking with him all the secrets and details of his crimes and leaving no closure for the families of the victims. He's probably one of the worst serial killers in history, and we will likely never know the full depth of the sinister crimes that he's committed. Some people speculate and connect him to crimes as early as 1998, his name pops up in so many missing persons cases that happened between the late 90s and the 2000s. One of the things that sticks out the most besides the how horrific the crimes were, Israel admitted that the crimes were completely random. He didn't know these people. He didn't stalk them. He, in Samantha's case, just decided a coffee shop would be a good place to kidnap and murder someone. And so he chose common grounds, and Samantha was working. When he details the murder of the married couple many years before, he admits that two years prior to the murder, he vetted that location and he buried essentially a kill kit with ropes and restraints and I think a gun and he left it there and returned two years later 
and that's when he decided on a random night to break into an innocent couple's home and murder them for no reason. While his crimes were random, they were planned and very well thought out. He was scarily smart in his crimes and it's because of that and because of how spread out and disconnected his crimes were, we may never be able to connect him to many or all of the crimes he's committed. And so many families may never get closure. Something else that really stuck out to me in my research, and I have to give credit to one of my favorite podcasts, Crime Junkie. Um, on that podcast is where I first heard of Israel Keys and the crimes that he'd committed. But in my research, there are many, many videos on YouTube that cover the interviews between Israel and law enforcement. And it's during these interviews that Israel tries to strike a deal with law enforcement. And he basically says that he's willing to comply. He's willing to talk. He's willing to direct them to all the crimes that he's committed and the locations of where we might find answers. But in exchange, he says that he doesn't want any of the details of his crimes, including the sexual assault, the murder, the dismembering. He doesn't want any of those details to come out because he said that he was afraid that one day his own four-year-old daughter would search his name and that's what would come up. So while he was concerned for his own daughter in some sick way, he had no problem killing, dismembering someone else's daughter. Probably repeatedly, because we don't know the extent of his crimes and we don't know his other victims. This was one of the most chilling cases I had ever heard. And my mind can only wander and imagine what more he could have done throughout his years and years of killing. I listen to many true crime documentaries, podcasts, read all the books. This case gave me such a chilling feeling. I have listened to podcast episodes on this case repeatedly because I just can't wrap my head around some of the details and how someone like this who seemingly fit in so well in normal society had a girlfriend a child there's pictures of him that show him you know hanging out with friends and family at a summer barbecue he's not anyone you would look at and expect to be capable of such horrific crimes but he was and he admitted that in his interviews he said that no one in his life knows the real him and no one in his life knew what he was capable of and I think that's the takeaway. We hope and we pray that the people we like and love are good people. We hope and we pray that the people we like and love will be safe. But we never really know what's going on in someone's head or what they're capable of. I hope that this wasn't too heavy for some of you. 
I do plan on continuing this series. There are a couple of other serial killers and cases I'd like to cover. And please feel free to check out Crime Junkie Podcast to take a listen to their version of this story. I love their work. They tell incredible stories. Um, It's a great podcast if you haven't taken a listen. So I encourage you to do so. And I hope that I will see you and speak with you next week while we cover another case and we get down and 30 spooky style.